Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of The Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, I want to talk about the case against Daryl Atkins. We'll be talking about intellectual disability and the death penalty. I will be quoting a few court documents associated with this case and subsequent appeals and rulings. The terminology used at the time was mental retardation. I and most of the psychological community do not use this term any longer. I want to clarify this as I may use it when quoting those documents. The terminology used now is intellectual disability. Let's start at the beginning. Daryl Atkins was arrested for his involvement in the murder of Eric Nesbitt. On August 16, 1996, Daryl Atkins, who was 18 at the time, and his accomplice William Jones committed a robbery that resulted in the death of Eric Nesbitt. Both men admitted to their involvement, but their stories differed as to who was responsible for the shooting. Daryl stated that he and William had been drinking and doing drugs that morning and decided to rob someone at the 7-Eleven with a borrowed gun from a friend so that they could purchase more alcohol. Daryl stated that he came up with the robbery plan, but William actually robbed Eric and ultimately pulled the trigger, ending in his death. They allegedly approached Eric in his truck, where William pulled the gun and forced his way into the truck's driver's side, and Daryl got into the truck on the passenger side. Eric only had $60 in his wallet, so the pair drove him to a nearby ATM and forced him to withdraw $200 more. During the withdrawal, Daryl admitted to holding the gun while Eric reached over William, who was driving, to complete the transaction. They then drove Eric and his truck to a secluded location, at which point Daryl claimed to have given the gun back to William. William then ordered Eric out of the truck and shot him eight times, accidentally hitting Daryl in the leg in the process. William agreed with most of what Daryl had recounted, except for the source of the violence. He claimed Daryl was the first to approach Eric, not himself. Daryl drove the truck, and it was Daryl's idea to drive to the secluded location where the murder took place. William explains the injury to Daryl by claiming Daryl shot Eric and shot himself by accident when William tried to take the gun away from him. For some reason, which is Unknown to this day, prosecutors chose to believe William's version of events over Daryl's. William agreed to a plea deal and to testify against Daryl in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. There's some speculation that they chose William's testimony over Daryl's because of Daryl's history of criminal offenses and drug use, along with his seemingly low intelligence. William testified against Daryl. Daryl was convicted of capital murder, and the jury then had to consider the death penalty at his sentencing. There was a pretty heated debate about Daryl's intellectual capacity. In these instances, it's pretty common for there to be a battle between experts for each side. The expert for the defense administered the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale, 3rd edition, which was the most up-to-date and pretty widely accepted intelligence test at the time. Daryl's IQ was tested at 59, which is fairly low. Only 1% of the population has an IQ score lower than 60. 
The expert, Dr. Evan Nelson, testified that Daryl was, quote, mildly mentally retarded. This diagnosis was not only based on Daryl's IQ, but also on an interview with Daryl, interviews of his family and correctional facility he was being held in, and school and legal records. The diagnosis is dependent on the person's ability to function independently compared to others of their same age. Daryl had not yet before received a diagnosis of this kind, but that didn't preclude him from being diagnosed at the time of the trial. He had not been thoroughly evaluated before. Had he been, he may have received that diagnosis earlier on in his life. He had the accompanying poor grades and placement in remedial courses. For those of you, including the prosecution in this case, who may think he was faking it, it's actually really difficult to fake a low IQ score. The amount of knowledge you would have to have of the test itself, how it's constructed, how many questions there are, how many you've gotten right versus wrong, equivalent to card counting, would be paramount to an incredibly high IQ. Someone with that kind of ability would be too smart to carry it out without detection. Because it's a developmental disorder and diagnosis is dependent on factors beyond the IQ test, the person would have to demonstrate a history of limited adaptive functioning. You can't very well do that in hindsight. You would have to build up that facade for years. Daryl had a clear history of poor and failing grades and never received a diploma despite being placed in multiple structured classes for slow learners. Now let's look at the prosecution's expert. They chose a real winner, Dr. Stanton Samenow. He did interview Daryl, he reviewed his school records and interviewed correctional officers who supervised Daryl in jail, but he failed to interview anyone who actually had any knowledge of Daryl outside of custody. That's the first red flag. The second red flag, he didn't perform a formal intelligence test. He used some questions from a, an outdated version of the Weschler memory scale from 1972, if you're wondering how outdated, and some items from the Weschler intelligence scale that Dr. Nelson had also used, but it was all very hodgepodge, choose your own adventure type of intelligence test. Not valid, not reliable, definitely of no use when evaluating someone for an intellectual disability, but I digress. He went on to use, additionally, a highly controversial test, the TAT, or Thematic Apperception Test, which was a personality test where you show a person a drawing and you ask them to tell a story about that drawing. It has never, ever, ever been a recognized measure of intelligence, so who knows why he even bothered using it. The defense had a field day with Dr. Samenow. He admitted that what he did was unethical. I'm, I'm absolutely serious about this. Based on the ethical principles of the APA to use up-to-date tests, he admitted that he was not in line with that, but he did say that it didn't matter. What? Why wouldn't it matter? Well, because he wasn't doing a quote, full evaluation. So we're comparing an actual full evaluation done by the defense to a 
half-assed evaluation done by someone who clearly didn't care enough to do the full evaluation. Okay. So based on this ridiculous, not full assessment, Dr. Same now believed Daryl was not intellectually disabled and that he was at least of average intelligence based solely on his assessment of Daryl's vocabulary, knowledge of current affairs, and some other random responses. Definitely not a standardized test by any stretch of the imagination. He believed Daryl's history of poor test scores and school performance was actually due to Daryl choosing not to pay attention sometimes and not wanting to do the required work. After hearing the expert witness testimony, along with very graphic details about Daryl's past crimes, the jury sentenced him to death in 1998. There was an appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court in January of 1999. Initially, they upheld the verdict, but upon further investigation, the sentence was overturned because of a legally defective jury sentencing form that failed to notify jurors that they could impose a life sentence instead of the death sentence. So basically, he got off on a technicality. The case was sent back to the trial court for a new sentencing proceeding where the evidence presented was basically the same. Not surprisingly, Daryl was again sentenced to death in August of 1999. Now on appeal, the Supreme Court of Virginia confirmed it this time. There was one judge, though, who saw the flaws in Dr. Samenow's testimony and concluded it was not to be believed. Well, thank goodness someone's paying attention. Daryl's appeal eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 2002. Based on precedent, most people expected the sentence to be reaffirmed. Penry v. Lineau had ruled in 1989 that imposing a death sentence on defendants with intellectual disabilities did not violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. However, the tides had changed quite a bit since 1989, and the U.S. Supreme Court actually ruled that executing someone with an intellectual disability does violate the Eighth Amendment. You might think this would have a positive effect on Daryl, but though this was a landmark case decision that exempted those with intellectual disability from the death penalty, it didn't immediately vacate Daryl's death sentence. It just sent his case back to the Virginia courts, where the state court decided another hearing would be held to determine whether Daryl was in fact intellectually disabled. And Daryl had to prove that he was intellectually disabled by a preponderance of evidence, which is really quite difficult to do as we have discussed in past episodes. In 2005, Daryl was found not to be intellectually disabled by a jury in Virginia. Even though the state admitted it was a really close case, they still pursued the death penalty. Daryl had scored a 59 on the IQ test Dr. Nelson administered in the first trial in 1998. However, he was recorded as testing at 67 and even 74 on tests closer to the trial in 2005. One explanation from Dr. Nelson himself was the practice effect, an exposure to intellectual stimulation. Ironically, while in jail, Daryl had more exposure to intellectual stimulation through his lawyers than he did throughout his childhood and adulthood up to that point. So at this point, 
Daryl's execution was set for December of 2005. Now, in 2006, Virginia Supreme Court unanimously overturned the trial court's ruling that Daryl Atkins was not intellectually disabled and eligible for the death penalty. The defense argued that the jury should not have been told that Daryl had been convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death already. That information could have biased them in their decision as to whether Daryl was actually intellectually disabled. The Virginia Supreme Court agreed, stating in its opinion, quote, the fact that the jury knew a prior jury had sentenced Atkins to death prejudiced his right to a fair trial on the issue of his mental retardation. In January of 2008, his sentence was actually reduced to life without parole. Why, might you ask? Prosecutorial misconduct. You heard that right. The Virginia State Bar kept a lawyer from voicing his concerns about the conduct of the prosecutor in Daryl's case. The prosecutor was unhappy with William's testimony because it didn't match the physical evidence. So he ended up coaching William to tell a story that was more consistent with the evidence, which is not allowed. This detail was kept from the defense for over a decade. The circuit court judge ruled that prosecutorial misconduct had occurred in this case, and instead of just vacating the conviction and ordering an entirely new trial, which he very well could have done, he actually commuted the sentence to life in prison instead. The prosecution was obviously not happy about this and requested writs of mandamus and prohibition to the Virginia Supreme Court. Because they believed the judge had actually exceeded his judicial authority with the ruling. Now, a writ of mandamus can be requested to remedy any defect of justice in a case. And a writ of prohibition is used to stop someone from doing something the law prohibits often used by a higher court presiding over a lower court, and often used in cases to prevent lower courts from exceeding their jurisdiction. It's used to prohibit acts from being completed, not to undo any previous act. They were grasping at straws at this point, and not surprisingly, the Virginia Supreme Court voted 5-2 to two that neither mandamus nor prohibition was available to overturn the court's decision. This is a case full of twists and turns and unprecedented ruling that will no doubt help a lot of people in the future. It's also a really sad reminder that not all expert testimony is created equal and should not be treated equally in court. Psychologists owe it to the community to hold each other accountable and to a higher standard, no matter which side of the case you fall on. We certainly shouldn't be adding to the pile of junk science or contributing to a loss of faith in the scientific community. Thank you for listening to episode 28. I hope everyone is staying safe and well. If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe, download episodes, leave a review, and tell your friends. You can listen to The Forensic Files anywhere you get podcasts or on our website at b-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.